This morning, uh, we are on 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is one of the most important passages in David's series. And I would even venture to say this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. And I'll go further to say this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Because this passage not only concerns for Israelites and the people of God in, in David's time, but for the Gentiles like us, the entire people of this earth get affected by this passage, known as Davidic covenant, God's covenanting with David. Um, and, and this is theologically so important, but I have a very limited time this morning. The story passage itself is an entire chapter, 29 verses. But I feel compelled for us to capture substance of sound theology. So a lot of times I begin to see, even within our church, uh, a lot of good um, practical teachings are just for the time being. But what lasts is really thinking rightly about God and thinking rightly about our Christian faith. And this is one of those essential theological issue. So let me briefly go over these four things about Davidic covenant, how it fits into the big picture of God's salvation. And this will actually help us to look for the things in the story. Otherwise, we'll just scan by and miss it. Here's the first one. Davidic covenant is a critical part of God's sovereign plan for the salvation of the world as well as of Israel. And the important thing is in keeping with Abrahamic covenant. So the mainly there are three covenants before the new covenant comes. And by the way, the word covenant is actually... Uh, in some sense, better word, fitting word than testament. There's an Old Testament and New Testament, right? So in some sense, God makes covenants with specific people as a representative of his, the people of God. And those three people in the Old Testament are Abraham and Moses and David. And the new covenant comes as Jesus arrives as the Messiah on the earth. And the kingdom of God is already here, but yet not fully consummated. And the day will come, the day of the Lord, Jesus will return. We will see the full-blown the kingdom of God. And not only heaven, but new earth 
a new heavens and earth here. So this is not just a little story has a moral lesson or for the Jews only, for special people. But this is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. What's the Abrahamic covenant? This is a slice of that first mentioning of it. Of it. So by the way, covenant is another word for probably the best word for uh, something that we could catch right away. It's promises. Um, Abrahamic covenant, to simply put it, is unconditional promises of God. Unconditional God's covenant. But when it comes to Moses, Mosaic covenant, they're lost. In some sense, much of it is a conditional promises. If you do this, you will get blessing. If you don't do this or do, uh, rebel, you will get curse. And then Davidic covenant, it seems also in general, there are conditional things, but overall, is an unconditional covenant. When it comes to Davidic covenant, the sovereignty uh, of God and God's sovereign grace shows up so much. But this is rooted in not just a new thing, but rooted in from the beginning of the earth, even God's covenant with Noah as well. But going back to Abraham and covenant, let's read chapter 12 of Genesis 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before he, his name was changed to Abraham, the beginning of the process of chosen people. He called Abraham, Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see that? It wasn't just for the physical descendants of Abraham. It was for all the families of, of the earth. And then God's sovereign plan expands and fully more in Davidic covenant. We'll, we'll see that. Okay, number two. Davidic covenant has the two layered implications of God's promises. This is important. For immediate implication, for near future, which is about David's house, David's dynasty, and distant future about Christ's kingdom and Christ's eternal kingdom, fully consummated kingdom as well. Just remember that there is 
multi-layer uh, meaning, or you could, you could take a look at it even today's story, there is a double meaning. Not two different meaning, but implication of near or distant future. Thirdly, it is a continuation of fulfilling Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant. Basically, think about this. Promise was land, Canaan, right? Descendants, your, your descendants will be like a numbers that you cannot even count up in the sky, the stars. Uh, and number three, your name will be great. And number four, you will have blessing and you will become blessing to all the peoples of the earth. The problem is that we sometimes understand the immediate implication, so therefore application is all, all about Israel becoming, uh, restoring as a nation, uh, having the land of Canaan, and it did wonderfully and miraculously. The Israelites came back to Jerusalem, and they now, since 1948, there's another full-blown nation. But the question mark is, it's really not the lineage of David or God's chosen elect. There's a question mark about that. But and yet, two-layer meaning. So this is actually immediately the nation of Israel, David's dynasty, but and yet in the long term, longer future, we're talking about kingdom of God. Kingdom needs three things, land, people, and sovereignty. The name of the Lord, authority of the Lord, and kingship of Jesus, the reign and rule. But sometimes when Christians think about kingdom of God, it's merely a spiritual sense also too. So yes, we go to kingdom of God in heaven, which means that spiritually we will be with the Lord. But actually, the very at the end, God's consummation of the sovereign plan is there will be new heavens and earth. There will be a kingdom of Christ eternally established in new heavens and earth, physically with resurrected body. That's incredible things. So think about, let's think about those two areas. But what's most exciting about Davidic covenant is it overcomes the breach of Mosaic covenant by God's sovereign grace through the Messiah, son of David. Let me just briefly mention what Israelites preached. Basically, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26 to 28, it mentions his condition. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding, 
commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. We all know what happened. Israel and, and Judah, northern and southern kingdom, both disobeyed and went astray and worshipped idols. But consequently, by Assyria, northern kingdom Israel was gone. By Babylon, Judah, the exile happened. So what do we do? I thought salvation comes from the lineage of David and through Jews to the Gentiles. But the important thing is for us to understand sovereign grace means that God is uh, self-sufficient and he, does, he changes not. So it's not like a, there's a two different God in Mo- Moses and, and for David and New, Test- New Covenant but there was a purpose, Apostle Paul's words. The purpose of Mosaic Covenant is to bring awareness of sins in a way that without the law, the humankind do not know full uh, depravity and depth of our sinfulness. And because of that, actually, the Mosaic Law becomes our tutor to take us to Christ, which means to, to the need of a Savior, because no one can keep the law perfectly. What does that mean then? Davidic covenant mentioning a son of David who will reign forever. We're talking about Messiah. He will restore because of God's sovereign grace. No longer we need to think about it, self-effort, keeping the law. So think about these four things as we mentioned. And then we will go through the story rather quickly. And by the end of the story, the lessons will be clear. I'm praying that. I am really excited about um, our church getting to understand and get excited about God's sovereign plan through the Davidic covenant. So let's go to the story. Story becomes uh, with David's desire. Chapter 7 of verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, that the ark of God, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Cedar meant very expensive, uh, luxurious wood. So the house of cedar means I, I, I now have a mansion, but the covenant, ark of covenant is in a mere tent. David felt bad, right? And Nathan said to, king, to the king, Go to all that, that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of judges of Israel whom I commanded you, I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? See, what's going on here is David had noble intention. And he really genuinely loved God. But this is one of those things that when you're thinking about yourself so much that you want to give a gift that doesn't fit to the receiver. He didn't understand fully of what God's need is all about. But actually, God doesn't need a thing. But he, thinking that he lives in a mansion and God's covenant, Ark of Covenant is intent, although the intention was good, in reality, God is saying, no, I do not need a house. I do not need a place to dwell in. Why is that? The Lord is the, the Lord of heavens and earth, which means that when he came down to dwell in the tabernacle, in a tent, it was solely for the people of God. And God literally condescended to be with them. So 99% of times, maybe close to 100% for all of us, the word condescend or condescending is very negative. So you're pompous and holier and you're looking down. Uh, but the only time that we could use this word positively, God humbled himself, came down to, to, in order to give them the presence of the Lord, Shekinah glory in the tabernacle of God. So when, when Jesus came, the temple was a big deal, and Jesus mentioned God doesn't dwell in, in the temple, because heavens and earth, it belongs to him. The symbolic things were not necessary anymore. So God is actually saying, no, I do not need it. And then he gives a rather uh, surprising answer. Starting with verse 7, verse 7, 8 through 17 is known as a Davidic covenant. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Prince is a typical Old Testament word for leader in our understanding. And I have been 
with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men, men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my, my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he, comes, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Whom I, you, I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall made sure forever before me. Your kingdom shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, let's notice what God is promising. There are three things. Number one, to make David's name great. The similar promise that he made to Abraham. So David's name will be great. Secondly, to give a place for Israel. Appoint a place, and then that place will be peaceful. No longer other enemies will be able to bother them. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. So the, the land prop, uh, promise. So in a way that there is a fulfillment in David's kingdom, their land was the largest, and their land was as God promised Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt, that size in David's kingdom time has been fulfilled. And to, thirdly, to establish the throne of God, David's kingdom forever. So there are two things very important for us to notice. And notice there are so many words, so many times the word house is used. But there are multiple meanings. The intentional use of the same word for different meanings. For example, you will not build, you will not make a house for me. I will make you a house. So the first house is a temple, physical building. 
The second house is a David's family, David's dynasty. And then another one is your son, referring to First Chronicles and First Kings will mention that, actually referring to Solomon, that he will build a house in my name. That house is actually a physical temple. But another word of a house, your house, I will establish your house forever, mean, means the eternal kingdom of Christ, the son of David. So that's why we need to look at two different ways of implication here. In one sense, David is being favored and blessed. Near future, his kingdom experiences a tremendous favor and blessing. But in a distant future, God is actually referring to the son of David, the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. That his kingdom will reign forever. Thus, the salvation brings to the Gentiles and all nations, not just to Israel. How does David respond to these incredible promises? What would you feel like? Let's be honest. Okay? One of the values at Crossways is that we just want to be real. I, I just, we just can't take the people who are fake, right? I want to be real. As I'm reading this, if I hear that, I go, wow, I feel better than even Mr. Rogers saying I'm special. You know? You're the only one. You're... Actually, I probably think that there's something good in me, huh? Those of you like me who have watched Sound of Music several times, the climax of Julie Andrews standing there, sometimes in my wicked childhood, I must have done something wrong, something good. For here you are standing here loving me. <laughs> in a way, I'm trying to laugh at myself and with you, but in yet, this is a reality of human's wicked heart. Without naming the people, the people who are graced by God and special gift from the Holy Spirit, what I see in the big churches and prophets or whatever that name that they use is a sense of pride. Notice David's response. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. 
because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you, you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation of its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. This is humbling to see that. And he concludes with this remarks. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. There is a parenthetical remark here. There is a pretension of humility and true genuine humility. The pretension of humility is self-conscious. You know what you're doing exactly. So you do not claim God's gift with humble acceptance. But here... David is not only humbling himself, but do you see the confidence, courage? Verse 8, 28. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. You could have missed it. And David first response is to sit before the Lord. This is a paradoxical principle of true faith. 
instead of doing a lot of things and trying to have a self-effort, determination, there's a stillness. Don't get me wrong. The paradoxical meaning, David's heart is full of passion, gratitude, and worship. So in a way that his passivity on the outside is not a passivity of sloth, laziness, but passivity of faith and receiving intentional, being actively passive kind of hand. A posture of humble surrender. Humble surrender to what? God's sovereignty. Oh, people of God, Crossway family, brothers and sisters, listen to this. This one thing will revolutionize your Christian life. If you put your heart to really believe that God is sovereign, that he doesn't have a problem of getting things done, he, that he is all-powerful, nothing slips through his fingers. And his loving kindness will never depart from you. That his intention and his will and his sovereign plan is bring goodness, mercy, and favor to you. No matter what happens in your life, no accident, no sickness, no death, no crisis will wreck us out of Christ's love, in, which is in God's love, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith posture. from which his lips are filled with praise and, and worship. Oh, I, this, is, this is very helpful for me. So although the past week you, heard, uh, you read Irene's email, which was really encouraging, but up until that moment, sitting in sit stillness, Guys like me, I'm usually a goal-oriented person. I feel better when I get some things done and get to do something. But sitting there and trying to pray, and I realize through this passage that clicking of faith putting my trust in God's sovereign care, that God is for me and he is sovereign. Not only, not only peace of mind and rest, but heartfelt worship and praise will burst out of, grow out of my heart, the bottom of my heart. I want to take remainders of time, although so many other little things that I discovered, I rather save time to focus on three lessons. 
Here's lesson number one. God's covenant with David reveals God's sovereign grace not only for David, but also for all believers in Christ. Allow me to synthesize one more time that God is God of Old Testament and New, New Testament, that from Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, David's, Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant, see God's sovereign grace. The first hand is not human responsibility because we don't have a capability to make it through. Although God requires a human responsibility and faith. But God's sovereign grace, no longer I have to be worried about not letting go of my dad's hand. Because even if I let go my hand, my Abba Father will hold on to me. Notice this. Jeremiah 33, verse 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. We already know this is not Solomon, right? And the capital branch meant someone special, messianic promise. And he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In the lineage of David and kingdom of northern kingdom, southern kingdom, do you remember anyone who could match this? No human king can be the Lord is our righteousness. So Isaiah is like a gospel book of the Old Testament. Writes this. Chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord's, Lord of hosts will do this. So no human king can do that. So messianic king has to be God himself. Referring to Jesus Christ. One more verse. Amos chapter 9 verse 11 through 12. What about the sins and the breach of the covenant and all that? Amos writes, quotes the prophetic voice of the God. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. 
that they may possess the, the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by name, not just Israel, all the nations who are called by name, declares the Lord who does this. Meaning Gentiles too. Acts chapter 15, James, brother of Jesus, actually quotes this when he settles the issue whether Gentiles need to become Jew first. There is no Jew or Gentile slaves or masters or or male or female in Christ Jesus. You get excited about this? Okay, whatever the problem that you're going through, when you think about sovereign grace of God in your life, there is no fear. Yes, hurricane can come. Some of our friends, close friends in, in Texas. But when we put our trust in sovereign God, who is absolutely good for his people, beyond our imagination, with his full of wisdom, there will be a peace, rest, heartfelt praise, and thanksgiving and worship. Without quick fixes. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is the essence of the gospel of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Second lesson. God's covenant with God points to the centrality of Christ, son of David, not only as our Savior or Messiah, but also as our eternal King. So two quick verses. Uh, Gospel of Luke, verse, chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. And behold, this is angel's announcement to Mary, Virgin Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, he, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Revelations eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, of our Lord, and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." So, which means the sovereign grace of, of sovereign plan of grace for our salvation is centered around Christ, the center of universe, not just for the religious people, people who are Christians, but the human mankind, 
history at the center of it, Jesus Christ. Eternal reality is centered around Jesus Christ. He will not become king for the believers only. On that day, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord and the king. How how will that affect us? The mind-boggling thing to me. I am to obey. I am to surrender and trust. And I, I am to follow my king. Rather than many different aspects of this world's traditions and temptations and trends, even within the Christian churches. Is Jesus king in your life, in your family, among your family circle, gatherings? Is Christ's central focus of your meal time, of your family time, of our worship time, of our home group time, men's group time, woman's group time? Is Christ the focus of our prayer, central focus, to whom we look to for hope, for salvation, for joy. And third and final lesson, David's response to God and God's incredible promises urges us that we also sit before God, before the Lord, not only with humble surrender, but also with deep gratitude and praise. Do you notice that when you, when we look to sovereign grace and sovereignty of God, the locus of our perspective and control is shifted to Christ, to God. Means that it means that when we look at the way we worship, the way we think about God has to be God centered. Samuel First, Second Samuel chapter 17, 18 through the rest of the verses. But just to give us the excerpt of today's passage. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Humble surrender is there humbling himself, not faking it, but in true sense, he sees himself from God's perspective. And that makes his heart burst with praise and worship. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, but there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. When was the last time you sat before God? 
Or yes, I, I mean literally sitting before God. But also, I also mean sit before the Lord with humble surrender and being still before the Lord, not trying to make things happen on your own, not trying to make God do things that you think he has to do or he's slow to do, but sitting before God, surrendering, not capitulating to fatalism, but entrusting actively to be still before God. When was the last time you burst out with praise and worship? And I, I pray that even in our small gatherings of men's group, women's group, and homes, home group in you know, near few weeks, and in our prayer gatherings, there will be a burst of praise and looking to God as our center. There is too much of man-centered religiosity in our days. And we could be tempted to go along with these trends. Quick fixes. I close with this quote from Eugene Peterson. Once again, uh, the insights were just well fitting. I hope God, you, the Holy Spirit would use this to penetrate the deep depth of your heart to bring to your mind this coming week. Peterson writes, David said, this may be the single most critical act that David ever did, the action that put him out of action, more critical than killing Goliath, more critical than honoring Saul, his enemy, as God's anointed, more critical than bringing the ark to Jerusalem, more critical because what David now does in response to Nathan's pastoral prophetic counsel will either qualify or disqualify him from the king work for which he has been anointed, trained, preserved, and empowered. When David sat down before God, it was the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It was a prayer. This was entering into the presence of God, becoming aware of God's word, trading in his plans for God's plans, letting his enthusiasm for being a king with authority and strength to do something for God be replaced with the willingness to become a king who would represent truly the sovereignty of God, the high king. In this pragmatic world, 
we ought to hear the nudging of the spirit of David's posture. Action that put us out of action. We begin to understand paradox of faith when we understand that posture. As I close, I have a one concern. Because some of you might be thinking, oh, I have a long way to go. I need to clean up my act. I need to repent this. I need to forgive some people. All that. And so, so that sounds good, but it's for some pe- people else. Remember, grace means undeserved free gift of God. The first and foremost, the, the hand of God is sovereign. And our response is either resistance. So like Peter saying no to Jesus who was about to wash his feet. It sounds like, looks like, no way, Lord. You will never wash my feet. That's a servant's job. Sounds humble, but the true humility is embracing what God's will is for us and receiving it. That means without cheap grace, every single one of us can be in that posture. This morning, whole church can be filled with deep gratitude and humble surrender, praise, and worship. And humble surrender when we are obeyed. The grace of God flows down, and there will be a revival. Oh God, there, let there be revival because of our, some of our trials, and church as a trials in, in zoning issue. Grace to you in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you will receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign. And we bow before you in humble surrender this morning. In our pettiness and worries and anxieties and stress. And even in in spite of the reality of harsh reality of zoning issue, or someone who's sick, seriously sick in our family, or our concerns for our children, and the financial problem, marital problem. But Lord, would you teach us right this moment that we, we would sit before you? to acknowledge your sovereignty and your grace for us, that you would not take away the steadfast love of the Lord because of your grace, not because of our qualifications or good works. Would you teach us in this day and age what it means to be people of God 
whose trust is in fully in sovereign Lord. We're just confused at times between inactivity and activity. Teach us to pray and to be guided by the Spirit in and through prayer. And thank you for your guidance for this morning. We pray all these things in the name of the Son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.